The prophet writes, Nevertheless, the gloom will not be upon her who is distressed, as when at first he lightly esteemed the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, and afterward more heavily oppressed her by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan in Galilee of the Gentiles. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of the shadow of death, upon them a light has shined. Well, this past Christmas, I did pretty good on the gift count, you need to know. I got a new golf bag for my boys. It's a nice thing. I got some photos of my grandkids. I got a Fitbit from my wife. Don't know if she was sending me a message or not, but uh, got a Fitbit. And then, I, of course, I got some gift cards, and, and I always appreciate a gift card. That means a good meal. Thank you so much. But over the last few years, I've gotten some very unique gifts from my friend Roland. Roland is quite the creative gift giver. One year, he gave me a giant potato gun. It was fabulous. Every pastor needs a potato gun. Me and my boys spent that Christmas morning shooting taters at our old minivan in the driveway. Then the next year, Roland gave me some Chinese throwing stars. And so I ran around in the front yard throwing Chinese throwing stars at pine trees. After that, he gave me some little daggers, which are even more fun to throw daggers than Chinese throwing stars. Then one year, he gave me nunchucks. Every pastor appreciates a good set of nunchucks. But this year, Roland shifted gears on me. I guess he ran out of lethal gifts. <laughs> and so this year, he gave me a high-beam flashlight. But here's the deal. It's only three inches long. It's a high-beam flashlight in this tiny little case. It slips in your pocket. A high beam that you can carry with you everywhere you go. It's really cool. In fact, Barbie even bought Kathy one. It shoots a mag light type beam from a little bitty case. She can slip it in her purse. Now, I'm not sure that Roland imagined this year's flashlight gift impacting me spiritually. But it has. For lately, whenever I contemplate the ministry of Jesus, God's gift to us I think of Roland's gift to me, this three-inch mag light. In our text this morning, Isaiah refers to a great light. But a great light shining from a place of gloom, a distressed and oppressed place that God had only lightly esteemed. In other words, a high beam in short case. The land that Isaiah is referencing, the dark backdrop for this great light, is identified by several phrases. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, by the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, in Galilee of the Gentiles. And if you've been to Israel with us, you've been to all these places. Each of these names should ring a bell to you. Of course, Zebulun and Naphtali were two of Israel's original tribes. They were given territories in the land. The region of Zebulun 
ran north of the valley of Megiddo and west toward the Mediterranean Sea. The land of Naphtali extended to the far north, as far north as Dan, and then southward surrounding the Sea of Galilee. The territories described as beyond the Jordan were those east of the Sea of Galilee. Today, we would call them the Golan Heights. In ancient times, the region of Galilee was called the Galilee of the Gentiles, since it was heavily populated by pagans and by Greeks and by Gentiles. And the way of the sea is the name of the caravan route, the road that sort of connected all of the previously mentioned places. It was known by its Latin name, the Via Maris, the way of the sea. As verse 1 describes, this was an area of Israel that was constantly under a cloud of gloom. Over Israel's long history, the nation fought frequent wars. Its various invaders would usually march down from the north. And thus, these areas were the ones that were first to take their fury and their anger. The troops would flow down the Via Maris, down the caravan route. And they would first trample on the northern regions of Israel, the land beyond the Jordan, and then the regions of Naphtali, and then Zebulun. In fact, Isaiah 9 is a continuation of chapter 8, which describes one of Assyria's invasions into the land. As Isaiah puts it, northern Israel was a distressed and oppressed land. In contrast to Jerusalem in the southern part of Israel, a city that enjoyed a relative peace and prosperity. The northern Israelis, they walked in darkness and they lived their lives in the shadow of death. And to an extent, the same gloom hangs over this region today. When Hezbollah terrorists bunkered in the Lebanese mountains want to fire a few rockets into Israel, guess where they strike? Those rockets hit the northern towns. Places like Kiryat Shimona and Kafar Bloom and other little villages that run along Highway 90. Recently, I met a Calvary Chapel pastor who moved to northern Israel. He's now bringing over Christian groups from the states. And together, they're painting bomb shelters where these Israelis are forced to spend too much of their time. His groups use bright colors. It brings some cheer into a gloomy shelter. Jerusalem was the holy city, the city of peace. It was the big city, you might say. And aspiring Jews wanting to move up in society, they came south to Jerusalem. If you lived in ancient Israel, you'd say the south is where the action is. The north was lightly esteemed. Yet here's the irony. Isaiah prophesies that God will shine a bright light, not from Jerusalem as you might expect not from ground zero of Judaism, not from the hub of their religion. Oh, the golden menorah, the light of the temple, the symbol of the nation, shine from the city of Jerusalem. But the light that God will shine, this bright light, this great light, will shine from the less significant north. Not from the city of peace protected by walls, but from the heartland from the unprotected fields and valleys where the invaders had trespassed and stomped on and plundered. No, Isaiah predicts a high beam, but from three inches. 
As we've been noting, embedded here in the prophecies of Isaiah are portraits of Jesus. And here is another portrait. Matthew chapter 4, verse 12. When Matthew introduces the ministry of our Lord Jesus, this is what he writes. Now when Jesus heard that John had been put in prison, he departed to Galilee, the Galilee of the Gentiles. And leaving Nazareth, he came and dwelt in Capernaum, which is by the sea, in the regions of Zebulun and Naphtali, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying, and here Matthew quotes our text this morning, chapter 9, verses 1 and 2, the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, by the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people who sat in darkness have seen a great light, and upon those who sat in the region in shadow of death, light has dawned. And then Matthew continues, From that time Jesus began to preach and to say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Matthew quotes Isaiah to make the same point about the ministry of Jesus, that God chose to shine the greatest light from a gloomy, oppressed, insignificant location. Jesus was that bright light that fit into your pocket. In fact, Matthew takes this idea a step further, and he pinpoints the exact city, if you could call it a city, which would be the headquarters of Jesus' ministry. It was a place called Capernaum, which means village of Nahum. It was just a fishing spot, really. Not much more than a place on the shore where the fishing boats would lay out their nets to mend and to dry. In contrast to the important city, the big city, the holy city of Jerusalem, Capernaum was a nondescript Jewish town on the outposts of the nation. And yet what amazing sights the eyes of its citizens saw over the three and a half years that stretch, a three and a half year stretch in the first century A.D. I'm sure you've heard of the Bermuda Triangle. I mean, it's an area in the Caribbean Sea, about a million square miles, depending on how you define it, where strange, mysterious, inexplicable phenomena have occurred. Airplanes disappear from the radar, and navigational instruments go haywire, and boats are lost and never found. Well, some researchers theorize that the Bermuda Triangle is a playground for the paranormal, even demonic activity. It has a reputation for being a supernatural hotspot. But there is another triangle of real estate that was also known for wild displays of supernatural activity. In fact, no other location on earth has seen more miracles per square mile than the northwest shore of the Sea of Galilee, the Galilee of the Gentiles, no less. The area between the two fishing villages of Capernaum and Bethsaida and the town of Chorazin. The Gospel Triangle, as many have called it, is an area just 10 square miles. But between 28 and 32 A.D., the people living there saw a cavalcade of miraculous, stupendous events, sights not seen before or since. Five loaves and two minnows were somehow multiplied to feed 5,000 families. Blind men received sight. Lame men were able to walk. 
A girl's corpse was brought back to life. A man actually walked across the surface of the water without any help or flotation device. A violent storm was calmed by the same man's rebuke. Demons were exercised. Multiple diseases were healed. Some by just speaking a word. It was an unprecedented parade of miracles. You see, the people who witnessed these events, they may have had a troubled past, a hard history, but suddenly God sent them a great light shining into their darkness. Spiritually speaking, Jesus was painting bright colors onto the walls of their bomb shelters. As Isaiah says in verse 3, God increased their joy. He brought life to these folks huddled under the gloom and the shadow of death. And how great a light Jesus was. When God created the heavens and the earth, He said, let there be light. And for the first time, light exploded into the primeval darkness. The dark was never again as dark. Light now pulsed and glowed. And here God sends another explosion of light. A great light was sent to folks living in spiritual darkness who had never before seen the, or known the light of God. In John chapter 8, verse 12, Jesus said, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. Jesus was like a three-inch high beam. As I see it, Jesus shined a light in three directions. He shined His light on the power of God, and then on the law of God, and then on the heart of God. Jesus revealed God's might and His mind and His motive. He shined a very great light. First, understand, Jesus shined a light on the power of God. I mean, when He calmed the sea and the wind and the waves obeyed Him, he was showing he could corral the forces of nature. When he multiplied the loaves and fish, he was multiplying and actually manipulating with their molecular structure. When he walked on water, he was defying physical laws and properties. You see, in all these miracles, Jesus showed a command over nature. He showed a command over Devils and demons as well. When he cast demons out of people, when he ran out that den of demons from the man in Gadara into the herd of swine, he was displaying his authority over Satan. When he healed the sick, he also was showing God's power. When he healed the leper, when he lowered the fever, when he made blind eyes see, he was revealing his dominance over disease. When Jesus raised the dead corpse of the, of the boy, there in the gate of Nain, when he raised Jairus' daughter and his friend Lazarus, he was also making clear his power over death. When Jesus healed the sick on the Sabbath day and threshed the wheat with his hands and fed his disciples, he was showing his superiority over tradition and over religion. And when Jesus dared to forgive sin, he was putting himself in the place of God. He was expressing his deity, his absolute sovereignty, his ability to judge. And when Jesus worked these miracles, it was evidence of who he was. Add it all up, the disciples did. Control over nature, authority over Satan, dominance over disease, power over death, 
superiority over tradition and religion, ultimately the ability to judge and forgive sin. Hey, this proved once and for all that Jesus was God Almighty. You see, there were Jews at the time of Christ who no doubt questioned the power of God. If God were Almighty, why did His people languish under a Roman yoke? But the light of Jesus was intended to restore to the Jewish people their confidence in the power of God. Their Father in heaven was still on the throne. Nothing was outside His jurisdiction or beyond His reach. Oh, God might not have chosen to work in the ways that the Jews wanted, but no matter how dark it became, God's light still shined. When Jesus entered the world, when the light first shined into the darkness, and ever since that time, Jesus has been showing up in dark places at dark times. He is a very great light. I read a story told by Gardner Taylor. He's a preacher from New York City, but he got his start down in the bayou. One night he was preaching in a little tiny church. The sanctuary was lit by a single bulb hanging from, a, from the ceiling, from a cord from the ceiling. Gardner was preaching away. When all of a sudden the electricity went out, the room went black. He didn't know how to handle the situation. He was a young pastor. What should he say? Well, he stumbled around for a few minutes when one old deacon from the back, he shouted out, Preach on, preacher. We can still see Jesus in the dark. In fact, the light that was first given to a people, this light that was first given, it was given to a people who walked in darkness who dwelt in the shadows. In regards to Jesus' miraculous birth, the angel told Mary, for with God, nothing will be impossible. And this became the theme of Jesus' entire life. He came to shine a light on the power of God, even in dark places and at dark times. You know, there is an interesting verse that quotes Jesus' opponents in John chapter 11. After he raises Lazarus from the dead, the eyewitnesses, they report the miracle to the Pharisees. They, in turn, debate the whole situation. And one of them asks this, What shall we do? For this man works many signs. His miracles were signs. I like how one man paraphrases that verse. He, he renders the question this way. He says, What do we do now? This man keeps on doing things, creating God's signs. I love that expression even more. God's signs. This was the purpose of Jesus' miracles. They proved that He was God. Only God had such power. Realize this. Everyone that Jesus healed later got sick and died. They did. They're not around today. Everybody He healed eventually died. Those He resurrected, they had to die twice. The power of God behind Jesus' miracles wasn't intended to alleviate all human suffering. He wasn't trying to put hospitals and mortuaries out of business. No, all of Jesus' miracles conveyed a message, and they still do today. When He opened the eyes of the blind, it conveyed hope to people suffering from all kinds of blindness, not just physical, but spiritual blindness as well, that He can open their eyes too. When he cleansed the leper, he was saying to all who are unclean, not just unclean with leprosy, but unclean with AIDS or 
with shame or with greed or with lust or sin or whatever it might be. He was saying to the unclean that you can be whole and you can be pure again. And that involves us. And when Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, he wasn't promising to spare all his followers from dying. Instead, he was proving to be the resurrection and the life so that when you're at death's door, you can trust in him. Jesus shined a light on the power of God, His might. But He also illuminated the law of God, His mind, God's mind. In Psalm 19, David makes some glowing comments about the incomparable law of God. He says this, The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, yea, than much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is warned, and in keeping them there is great reward. God's law was a beautiful expression of his mind and of his heart. But as usual, man took what was beautiful and he defiled it. He made it ugly. The first century Pharisees had interpreted God's law in a harsh, condemning way. And Jesus revealed that this was not God's attitude at all. In light of Jesus, it was apparent that God thinks in rhythms of grace, not just according to the demands of the law. The Pharisees, they they were quick to condemn the woman taken in adultery. They used the law to solidify her sentence. And Jesus never denied the law. He just qualified who was worthy to carry it out. And as soon as those stones began to fall from the fingers of her self-righteous accusers, it was apparent the answer to that question was Jesus alone. Jesus was the only one that day authorized to cast a stone, and he chose not to. He chose to forgive. He extended mercy and grace. The law he followed looked for opportunities to pardon, not punish. Oh yes, the law handed out sentences to lawbreakers. But first it looked for ways to convey God's forgiveness. Think of it. Sacrifices were offered continually on the altar of the law. Sin was covered constantly. God's wrath was passed over every year at the Passover. I mean, a river of blood flowed from the altar testifying to God's determination to save. It was the law, mind you, Exodus 34, that revealed God's name. The Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abounding in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. That's a wonderful name. That's another name for grace. In Luke 15, Jesus taught that God is like the shepherd who seeks out that one lost sheep. He's like the woman who turns over the house in search of that one lost coin, or the father who sees his lost wayward son at a distance and yet races down the street in order to welcome him home. 
These parables proved that the law of God had done nothing to stunt God's seeking and saving love or to tighten off the valve of grace. Jesus had opened it wider. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus told us that He came to fulfill, not destroy the law. In Him we receive an inward spiritual righteousness that exceeds the external righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees. The Pharisees were proud. They had kept the law. You shall not murder. They had never done the deed, but trust me, the seed was growing in their heart. You may never pull the trigger, but unresolved anger can be a deadly shot. Jesus taught them to deal with their anger in loving ways, to pull out the weed before it became a deed. The Pharisees took pride in the fact that they had been faithful to their wives. But Jesus says, if you lust after a woman in your heart, you've committed adultery already. You see, the Pharisees had interpreted the law in a stilted, legalistic, literal kind of way. Jesus understood the law spoke not just to a man's actions, but to his or her heart. The law didn't just direct our hands. It checked our hearts. The law served so many purposes. It communicated God's love for righteousness. It instilled in us a fear of the Lord. It exposed our sin and our need for a Savior. Hey, the law helps us to identify sin. I mean, you wouldn't know you were breaking the speed limit unless what? Unless there was a sign alongside the road that revealed the speed limit. And this is what the law did. It set our limits. It showed us the sins that we were committing. This past week, Kathy and I, we, we ate at Ruby Tuesdays. We kind of like Ruby Tuesdays. I, I like the hickory bourbon chicken. Don't worry, they cooked the bourbon out of it. It's not like I leave drunk or anything. I mean, it just tastes good. And the menu actually lists the calories for you. Hickory bourbon chicken's 344 calories. I eat that and I think, man, that, that's pretty good. 344 calories, that's pretty good. Tastes great and it's less filling. In fact, I read a study recently that said Americans appreciate the labeling of the calories in a food item. The only problem, according to the same study, though we appreciate the calorie labeling, it has very little impact on what we choose to eat. <laughs> the labeling lets us know what we're eating is bad for us, but it doesn't give us the power to resist or a new taste for some alternate food that would be better for us. And this was the problem with the law. It exposed what was wrong in us, but it lacked the ability to make any change in us. In Jesus, though, God shined a light on God's law. The law was all about love, a love for God, a love for your fellow man. But the only way to achieve such love was to receive it from Jesus. Thus, the key to the law is to know Christ. You see, this is what Jesus taught us in John chapter 6. The Jews came to him and they asked him, they said, what shall we do that we may work the works of God? In other words, what deed can we do to be pleasing to God? And Jesus answered them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he sent. That you believe in this light that God has shined into your life. That you come to Jesus, and when you do, He'll write God's law on your very heart. His Spirit will inscribe His love into your very nature. 
Jesus shined a great light on the law of God and on the power of God. But he also cast a very great light on the heart of God, God's motive. You know, for some reason, the Jews in Jesus' day, they had it all wrong. They had God pegged for some vindictive, judgmental God, somebody who was quick to condemn and who enjoyed punishing. They assumed that because God loved them, He hated everyone else. In fact, the Jews believed that God created the Gentiles just so they'd ha- He'd have some kindling for the flames of hell. But just the opposite was true. God loves all people. And to prove it, he shined a very great light, not just to the Jews in Jerusalem, but he shined that light into the Galilee of the Gentiles. What a shock it was to the Jews when Jesus reached out and loved sinners and Gentiles and the unsavory of society. You know, one of the criticisms leveled against Jesus should have been a trait most admired. In Luke 7, verse 34, his enemies called Jesus a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Imagine the Lord of glory, the Holy One, came to this earth to be known as a friend to tax agents and slime balls. Can you imagine? In the very same passage in Luke chapter 7, a woman comes to Jesus All the Bible says about her is that she was a sinful woman. Oh, she could have been a prostitute. Maybe she was a snooty housewife. You never know. But she found Jesus at the Pharisee's house. He was eating dinner. Somehow she scooted by the security and she fell at his feet. And she immediately, she broke open an expensive perfume. And she mixed the liquid with her tears. And she anointed his feet. She even dried his feet with her hair. It was a riveting act of repentance, true repentance. But the Pharisee, he didn't see it this way. He couldn't believe that Jesus, a prophet, a man of God no less, would allow such a sinner to touch him, let alone anoint his feet. Jesus tells the Pharisee a a story of forgiveness. He says one man is forgiven 500 denarii, another man 50 denarii. And then he asks, who will love more? Well, the answer is pretty easy, isn't it? This man was a quick learner. He said, well, I guess the one who was forgiven more. Wow, forgiveness was the only explanation for this woman's extravagant love. And the lack of forgiveness was the conclusion for this Pharisee's judgmental spirit. And then Luke 7 ends it. Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. And those who sat at the table began to say to themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Jesus was all about forgiveness. His heart, that is God's heart, was to make a way for sinners to come to God and be forgiven. Not raise the walls higher and make it more difficult for you and I to jump over. I mean, even when he had to deal with that rich young ruler, the man who'd made an idol out of his bank accounts, Yes, Jesus had to tell him to go and sell all that he had to cash in his idols. And, of course, afterwards, his disciples grilled Jesus. They thought he was unnecessarily hard on the fellow. They asked Jesus, well, who then can be saved? And Jesus answered them in the most marvelous way. He said, with men this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. He just gave out hope to everybody. God still has ways of reaching a man 
in dealing with a man and getting a man to a place of repentance and faith that we know nothing about. Actually, it takes a miracle for any of us to be saved when we think about it. And God had one final miracle in store, a miracle that would take care of our salvation. His Son bore the sin of the world on His innocent shoulders And He paid the penalty for all our sin, past and present and even future sins. And now He offers us that forgiveness for free. Did you know, my friend, it's for free? I didn't say cheap. It's not cheap. Your forgiveness costs God a high price. There's nothing cheap about the pardon He gives us. It costs God the blood of His only Son, but it's now free. It's free for your taking. Pastor Wayne Cadero tells a story of his lunches with Gene. His friend would always pick up the tab. I mean, they went to lunch every week, and always Gene would pick up the tab. Well, Wayne thought it was a nice gesture. He appreciated Gene's thoughtfulness. But after the 80th time or so, he said, Gene, let me pay today. Gene snapped back, no, no, no. I insist. I'm the one that's going to pick up this tab. This went on week after week after week. The two men always arguing over who would pay, but Gene always winning out. One week, Wayne arrived to the restaurant early, and he told the waitress, he said, now when you deliver the bill today, I want you to bring it straight to me. All of a sudden, her eyes lit up, and she said, oh, Gene said you might try to do this. I'm sorry, but I can't. Gene gave me orders. The bill goes to him. That day, Wayne pleaded. He said, Gene, I yearn to pick up the tab. I'm starting to dream about picking up the tab. I beg you, please, let me pick up the tab. But Gene refused. He never, ever gave in, not even once. And my friends, our Jesus is just like Gene. Rather than a God who's reluctant to forgive, God insists on picking up the tab. He's already paid the price. And He picks it up not once, not twice, but He does it every time you sin because He loves fellowshipping with you. In a land of gloom, in a distressed and oppressed place, in a location that God and men lightly esteemed, God shined a great light, a high beam in a three-inch case. His name is Jesus, and He has shined a light on the power of God and the law of God and the heart of God. A young man was talking to his friend when he confessed his love for a girl who didn't even know it. He'd been too afraid to pursue this girl. He was afraid of the rejection he might receive. His friend asked him, he said, well, how much do you love her? Is it just love? Or is it big love? Or is it great love? Well, the fellow replied, well, what do you mean by just love and big love and great love? His pal explained, he said, well, just love lasts two months. Whereas big love lasts two years. But great love changes your life. And indeed it does. That's why if you haven't experienced a changed life, it's possible 
that you don't know Jesus and how much he really does love you. He is a great light shining into our dark world. Bible commentator Alfred Edersheim mentions a title that the Jews had for the Messiah. He was the Enlightener. For this is what Jesus does. He enlightens us to the might and the mind and the motive of God. There is no guessing anymore when we get our eyes fixed on Jesus. He is a bright light. Our doubts flee. Our faith is fortified. When Jesus appears, when we see Jesus, the present issues become clearer. The fogginess is dispelled. Deception is uncovered. Truth is spotlighted. Insights abound. For Jesus is a great light. I want to close this morning with a story about a man named Arthur Burns. Burns, a distinguished economist, was the chairman of the Federal Reserve. And he was a financial counselor to presidents from Eisenhower to Reagan. He was also Jewish. So when he started to attend a White House prayer group, the Christians who made up the group tried to be particularly respectful of Burns. When it came time to pray, not wanting to make him feel uncomfortable, the group would sort of skip over Mr. Burns. Until one meeting, the man who was leading the group that day wasn't aware of the situation. And so he asked Arthur Burns to lead them in prayer. To everyone's surprise, he agreed. In fact, no one present that day ever forgot the words that he spoke. He prayed this. Lord, I pray that you would bring Jews to know Jesus. I pray that you would bring Muslims to know Jesus Christ. Finally, Lord, I pray that you would bring Christians to know Jesus Christ. Amen. And this is my prayer. That you would know Jesus. For I think it's possible for a person to be saved by Christ and yet never take the time to really get to know Him. Some Christians remain in the dark because they've never learned of His power and of His law and of the heart of Jesus Christ in a place of gloom and distress. In a place that had seen its share of suffering and darkness. In a place that was lightly esteemed. God sent a great light. A mag light in a tiny case. I hope Jesus is the light of your new year. Through Jesus, you'll learn the power of God. And the mind of God and the heart of God. Jesus has a great love for us. May we have a great love for Jesus.